52, and we're going to be reading the whole chapter today, which is 12 verses. So that's Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 through to 12. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You are sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away from for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Thanks be to God for his word. I invite Clint to preach the word. Well, good morning, everyone, especially if you're visiting with us today. If this is your first time with us, a very special welcome to you. Let me add my greeting to Ben's. Would you please join us all now as we pray, as we come to our God's word together? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you're a speaking God who speaks words of kindness, of comfort, of gentleness, of love, and of encouragement to us, that we may know you and rest in you. Please let us hear your voice today in your word, the Bible. And this we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. I wonder, have you ever felt utterly worthless as a Christian? Have you ever felt beyond the reach of the Lord's love, and the Lord's care, and the Lord's comfort for you? 
Maybe you look at what's going on in your life and you begin to believe that the Lord has forgotten you, that you're just not worth his care and attention anymore. Perhaps you've been told by others too often that you are worth nothing. And you've been treated like it, so you find it hard to believe that God could find any worth or value in you. Maybe some sin makes you believe you are unworthy of God's grace. That you've tried his patience maybe one time too many. That you've overdrawn on the forgiveness that Jesus achieved for you on the cross. I think I'd be surprised if most of us hadn't come close to these experiences at least at some points in our Christian lives. I'm also starting to suspect that these experiences are essential to our Christian lives. What's sometimes been called the dark night of the soul. Because they give us a true appreciation of the gospel and of who we are in Christ if we let them. On the flip side, those who never despair over their sin or or wrestle with who they are in Christ, with, with the reality of God's grace for them, I think are probably most in danger of fooling themselves into self-righteousness and of neglecting to realize how critical their relationship with Jesus really is. But yes, worthless, of no value, purposeless, useless, good for nothing, miserable, lousy. That's how God's people would feel when they were defeated and taken into exile in Babylon in the 580s B.C., So as they looked at themselves and as they looked at their situation, they would be paralyzed by a sense of utter worthlessness. They would feel like it would just be better to give in, to lie down, go to sleep, and never wake up again. And perhaps in your darker moments, you might have felt like that too. I'd like to tell you this morning from God's word that there is cause to wake up and appreciate what God has done for us in Christ. In Isaiah 51 and 52, in their sleepiness, Israel hasn't actually noticed that the winds of change are already blowing. One chapter back in 51, the Lord, despite being their judge, is is also actually their rescuer. Yes, they've drunk the cup of the Lord's anger at their sin, but not to the bottom. He still loves them and he's still deeply committed to them. So immediately before this morning's reading, if you've got a Bible with you, just look at verse 21 of chapter 51. Thus says the Lord, your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, and the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. Already there is hope. The the new dawn's rays are beginning to show over the horizon. As the Lord's righteous anger is transferred away from his people towards another. Now please do have your Bible open at Isaiah 52 so you can follow along with us today. There's also space for notes in the service pamphlet. um, There's no outline there. I wasn't able to get that to Anna this week. I was away. But we'll look at this section around the three announcements that are made in these 12 verses. And the very first one is the call to awake in verse verse 1. Awake, announced twice for emphasis. It 
So in verse 1, to his people who are paralyzed by a sense of utter worthlessness, the Lord sounds a wake-up call. Now, this is a little bit like the Reveille uh, that's played by army buglers to signal the start of a new day's duties or to break the silence, the minute silence at an Anzac Day dawn service. It's a rousing call to wake up because while the Lord's people have been incapacitated by their sense of worthlessness, they've been asleep, the Lord himself has actively been at work and there are things to behold, things to see, things to take notice of, things to rejoice in. Verse 1 to 6 really give us a sense of how low the Lord's people were. It's a miserable picture. They were weak, poorly dressed, and violated in verse 1. Their place was on the ground in the dust, chained up as the possession of their captors in verse 2. Their oppression and captivity, whether by, by Egypt in the 15th century BC or Assyria in the 8th century BC or Babylon in the 6th century BC, it was always a cut price deal. They weren't even worth the price of sale, verse 3 and 4. Finally, in verse 5, they are a laughingstock. They are humiliated because they are the Lord's people. And what a joke he is. Look at his temple. Look at his city. Look at his people. Look at his king. Where are they now? Say the nations. But it's to these very people that the Lord says, Wake up. Awake. Awake, O Zion. He calls them to flex their muscles, to put on their best clothes, to put the traumatic memories of the past behind, to shake off the dust, get up and take a seat, to take off your chains and remember that they remain as precious to the Lord in their captivity as if they were his own daughter. And all this is possible because of how the Lord turns the tables on the cashless transactions of verse 3 and 4, on the nothingness for which they are sold. Because if no money has changed hands, actually the sale is not valid. The Lord is still the rightful owner of his people. In fact, those who oppress them for nothing are no better than thieves, taking that which does not belong to them. Though the Lord permitted the exile as his judgment on his people's sin, the thieves will have to answer to the rightful owner for their theft. You see, nothing has actually changed in the Lord's relationship with his people. Yes, there's a change in their fortunes, in their political autonomy, in their geography, but the Lord hasn't gone anywhere. He's saying, I'm going to let you know, here I am. The problem is the Lord's people don't know it. They're, it's their own feelings, their own situation, the voices of those around them, they all tell them otherwise. So what will the Lord do? Look at verse 6. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. You see, the Lord is going to ensure that his people are left in no doubt about his loving presence with them. Well, that's our first heading, uh, awake, awake, from verse 1 to 6. 
The second heading, the second announcement comes up in verse 7 to 10. And it comes up in verse 7, your God reigns. It's an unmistakable declaration. The Lord who, who comforts his people, who loves his people, who makes things new for his people, who gathers his people, all these things we've been learning about over the last few weeks, the one who is deeply committed to his people, he is still the Lord who's in charge of everything. Not the king of Egypt, not the king of Assyria, not the king of Babylon, not even the king of Israel. Your God reigns. He's the boss. He's in charge. So the picture we're given here is of kind of a besieged city, and then there's this, this courier who's running with a message. And he can be seen from far away as he descends the slopes of the mountains on the horizon. You kind of see the dust rising as the courier races down the mountain slopes. Now, the focus on his feet here might be ironic. In the ancient world, feet weren't considered especially beautiful. Feet were dusty and dirty and bruised because people didn't used to really wear shoes. They were washed by slaves. But here, because of the glory of the message, even the dusty and ordinary and bruised feet of the courier are beautiful. Thank God for those feet. And the messenger brings good news. Good news of peace, of happiness, of salvation. All fulfilled in that key proclamation, your God reigns. In verse 8, the passage takes on the form of a, like a choral masterpiece. We've had the solo of the messenger, and now it's responded to by the chorus of the watchmen as they sing for joy at the message, your God reigns. Wasn't it wonderful to sing it together a moment ago in that song before the reading? Uh, Melissa reminded me, we actually sang that song at our wedding 15 years ago. I'd forgotten, but what a beautiful way to put these words to music. Watchmen in the ancient world would have stood as lookouts on the city walls. And they would have been the first to see the messenger running down the hillsides towards them. Perhaps they were the first to hear the faint strains of his announcement as he was shouting as he approached the city. Of course, the city is in ruins, though, isn't it? After what Babylon did to it. The temple's torn down. The city walls are torn down. The people are removed. But we've got to remember, this has got far less to do with physical Jerusalem, geographical Jerusalem or Mount Zion where the temple was, and far more to do with spiritual Jerusalem, spiritual Zion, the place where the Lord will reign and rule with his people among them forever. And it's the Lord's personal return to his people which brings comfort and redemption and joy and it's broadcast for the whole world to see. I want to read to you an extended section from uh, John Oswald's commentary on this passage. I think he says it a bit better than I can. Will Israel remain a waste forever, forsaken by her God? No. The ruins will be rebuilt. But much more than that, and much greater cause for rejoicing, is the restoration of the people to their God. They too are a waste. Their lives seem to be a landscape of ruins. Their sin has left them alienated from God and from each other, bound by enemies, both physical and spiritual, helpless in despair, guilt, and purposelessness. 
It is into this landscape that God comes with the promise that he has comforted them and redeemed them. These two verbs are at the very center of the message of this part of the book. They speak of restoration to fellowship, deliverance from bondage, encouragement in despair, strength in weakness, forgiveness in guilt, purpose in uselessness, and more. If this is not cause for unrestrained joy, what is? Yes, the waste places of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but much more to the point, the waste places of the people of Israel and of the people of the world will be rebuilt. Break forth, shout joyously. Yes, your God reigns. Now we've got to remember that what Isaiah is prophesying here is said in the present, in his own time, but with an eye to the future. These words were probably written down over a hundred years before the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon actually took place. But do you see the Lord's comforting kindness here? That almost a century in advance, he tells the people what to expect, but also how to consider it, what perspective to view it through. He knows how this is going to affect them, so he tells them everything they need to know ahead of time to sustain them through the valleys and mists of his salvation plan. These words were to be read and memorized so that their full meaning could blossom when the exile actually took place and beyond. Of course, one place we see this this blurring of the present and the future is in this idea of redemption for God's people in verse 3 and 4. Because the God of the Bible is a God who redeems. Now, redemption, I think, is a word we're more used to using, perhaps, in the context of various loyalty programs we might be part of. Uh, If you're anything like me, you sign up to a whole bunch of things where you get points for stuff that you don't really understand. Uh, But you can redeem those points, can't you? Um, My Qantas points are now into six figures, which I'm told might get me a return flight to Mackay. I received an email a few weeks ago that said I'd lose all my points if I didn't use some of them. So I redeemed a few thousand points for the cheapest thing I could find on the Qantas reward store, uh, a set of barbecue tools I could have bought at Bunnings for $30. (laughs) But the value of loyalty programs aside, that's what redemption is, isn't it? It's an exchange of something of value in order to buy back something else. In my case, points were redeemed for the price of a spatula and a pair of tongs. But in a much greater way, this is how the, Lord, how the Bible describes the Lord's saving work for his people, a buying back. He is a God who redeems, and those he redeems are his people. J.I. Packer calls it a rescue by ransom. Something is paid to gain them back. The way the Bible uses this language of redemption tells us something critical about the heart of the Lord towards the people he is saving. Because at its root, the fact that the Lord redeems us means that we are worth something to him. We are actually worth a price paid to the Lord. Redemption means that the Lord is willing to pay a price, however high, to save his people, to save you and I from our sins and secure our relationship with him forever. Yes, the Lord forgives our sins. Yes, he declares us not guilty in a legal sense. 
Yes, he secures our future. But redemption does more. It speaks of the value the Lord places on those he saves. A well-used illustration might help to make this point. The story is told about a little boy who once made a toy sailing boat. Made it with his father. They went to the shop and they bought the materials, shaped it and painted it up. And it was a beautiful little sailing boat. It was his pride and joy. And he sailed it on a lake near his house. And one day a wind blew up and it blew the little boat away. And of course the boy was heartbroken that his pride and joy was gone. A few days later, the boy spotted his boat uh, in a shop window down in the town, and it had a large price tag on it. He knew it was his boat, so he went inside and he spoke to the shopkeeper. And he said to the shopkeeper, look, that's, that's my boat. Can I have it back, please? And the shopkeeper said, I'm sorry, but I paid a lot of money to a, a, a local fisherman to get that boat. If you want that boat, you'll have to pay the, the sticker price for it. The boy was discouraged, but he went and worked and worked. He mowed lawns, he washed cars until he scraped together enough money to buy his boat back. Nothing was going to stop him from raising the money to go and buy his boat. Eventually, he got the money together. He went in triumph to the shop and he paid for his boat. And as he walked out, he said to his boat, now you are twice mine because I made you and now I have bought you. Friends, this is what the Lord's redemption means for us in our relationship with him. We are his, not just because he made us, but because he bought us at the price of his own son. He has redeemed us. In verse 3, the Lord declares that his people shall be redeemed without money. At one level, as we mentioned earlier, this means the sale was not, was not valid in the first place. But at another level, it points ahead to a redemption that's going to cost far more than dollars and cents. It's going to cost the Lord the life of his faithful super servant. This will be the subject of the fourth and final servant song in verse 13. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. But the connection to the Lord Jesus is unmissable when we consider what the New Testament says about our redemption. So we read in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. And just hear the generosity in the Lord's redemption here. It says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Hebrews 9 verse 12, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And I wonder if you noticed a little earlier the the kind of confused tenses we find here in in chapter 52. Because in verse 3, redemption's a future event, but in verse 9, it looks like it's already happened. What's going on? Well, quite simply, what will happen in the future is so certain that it can be spoken of as already having happened in the present. 
It's a present reality. So Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our future redemption, friends, is the present reality that we are precious to the Lord. So precious that he's willing to pay the highest price for our safe return. Just over a century ago, Bible scholar B.B. Warfield put it like this. He says, there is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. It gives expression not merely to our sense that we've received salvation from him, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure the salvation for us. It is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he has paid a mighty price for us. Your God reigns, and he is a God who redeems. Well, the final announcement in verse 11 and 12 is the announcement to depart, to leave, And this will be especially relevant to the Lord's redeemed people as they prepare to leave Babylon at the end of the exile. But, you know, it's no less relevant to those of us who are redeemed in Christ. For those returning from Babylon, this describes their return sanctioned and supplied by the Persian king Cyrus the Great under the Lord's sovereign hand to go and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. It's a very different experience to when they left Egypt. Here they are not going to be fleeing like frantic fugitives in fear that their freedom might be reversed at any moment. You remember what happened, of course. They left Egypt, and in a split second, Pharaoh raced after them with the chariots. They had to leave in haste, just in case they didn't get out. The return from Babylon was going to be very different. But that pointed forward to an even greater and larger return Because it also describes the journey of the Lord's redeemed out of the world and towards heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so verse 11 and 12 really are a call to the redeemed to live a redeemed life. A life set apart for the Lord with a calm, confident awareness of the Lord's presence, both to lead us and protect us on our way. For you shall not go out in haste, You shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is the demeanor of those who know the Lord loves them and values them. Because you guard what you value, don't you? Well, as we move to a close, in John Bunyan's famous story, The Pilgrim's Progress, it was a story written as an allegory of the Christian life. The main character, Christian, and his traveling companion, Hopeful, are on their way to the celestial city. It's the picture of heaven. And at one point, they reach a place that they've been warned about, a place called the Enchanted Ground. It's a place where a shepherd had told them they would be very tempted to fall asleep on their way to heaven, and the danger was that they'd never wake up again. 
they get there and they suddenly feel very tired, very drowsy. It would just be better to lay down and go to sleep. Christian's traveling companion hopeful even reasons that it might be good for them. Maybe, you know, rest a while, be refreshed for the journey. But they remember the warning not to sleep because they might never wake up. And so in order to stay awake and not abandon the journey, they decide to talk together, have a conversation. They say, well, what should we talk about? Well, let's talk about how Jesus found us at the first. How they first came to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hopeful remembers how he first became convicted of his sin and how that wasn't enough to change his life. It worked for a while, but everything came back twice over. And he tried praying more. He tried reading his Bible more. And how that wasn't enough to change his life. He tried to change his friends. He tried to change his habits. That wasn't enough to change his life. And he got very depressed and despairing. And finally, he tells Christian that he spoke to a friend whose name was Faithful. He told him that unless I could obtain the righteousness of a man that had never sinned, neither my own or all the righteousness of the world could save me. And so Faithful told Hopeful about Jesus and how there was no sin so great that it could not be covered by Jesus and that he simply had to rest by faith in what Christ had done for him. So Hopeful relentlessly seeks Jesus in prayer and eventually finds him. And there's a beautiful conversation where Hopeful starts raising all sorts of objections against why Jesus can't save him. I'm too sinful. I don't know how to believe. I don't know if I have the right kind of faith. And all these objections, Jesus answers gently and compassionately with words straight from the Bible. From all of which I gathered, says Hopeful, that I must look for righteousness in his person and for satisfaction for my sins by his blood. And that what he did in obedience to his father's law and in submitting to the penalty thereof was not for himself, but for him that will accept it for his salvation and be thankful. And now was my heart full of joy, mine eyes full of tears, and my affections running over with love to the name, people, and ways of Jesus Christ. This kept them awake on their journey to the celestial city the remembrance of what Christ has done for them, the price that Christ had paid for them, a price that they themselves could not pay. Friends, when we feel worthless, we feel too far gone, we feel too weak in faith, too sinful, as always, the answer is the gospel. Particularly, the answer is to rest in the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Because the fact that God didn't just save you, but redeemed you, means that you matter to him. The fact that he was willing to pay the price of his only son for you means that you are of value and worth to the God who reigns. You are precious to him. You are loved and valued by him. And no matter what you might feel yourself or what your circumstances might say, what others might say, you must wake up because your God is a God who redeems. He is a God who reigns. And he has redeemed you. Why don't we pray?
Our Lord and God, we thank you so much that you paid for our freedom with the life of your beloved son, Jesus. Father, the cost is just more than we can possibly understand. Especially when we consider how sinful and worthless we might feel ourselves. Now, we were really worth nothing to you except that you chose to love us, chose to commit yourself to us, chose to redeem us. Father, forgive us for listening more to the voices in our hearts and the voices around us than to your voice. Help us to appreciate on the cross just how much you love us and how much we matter to you. We pray this in and for the sake of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm going to go and invite the kids to come back and join us, and then we're going to move to our service of the Lord's Supper. There's a pamphlet on the inside of your service brochure. You'll find it can help you follow.